We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. There have been three naval military disasters where the loss of life was greater than the 1,500 lives lost in the sinking of the Titanic. The stories are incredible. Over the next three programs, I'll talk about them, beginning with the riverboat sinking on the Mississippi in 1865, just as the American Civil War drew to a close, the worst maritime disaster in American history. During the early part of the Civil War, there was a practice of paroling men who'd been taken prisoner. The parolee had to agree not to resume fighting for the side that he'd fought for for the rest of the war. That idea had its obvious limitations. It was replaced later with both sides doing prisoner swaps. This meant that there were never too many people that had to be held as prisoners of war. But in the summer of 1863, the North, the Union side, scrapped this deal. Maybe it's exaggerating to say that one Johnny Reb soldier was worth 10 Yankees in a fight, but there was some truth to that. More importantly, the South had limited manpower resources and the Union decided that it was better not to return veteran Reb soldiers back to the South. Now, the South was pretty much starving by this time because of the Yankee blockade. Southerners were having enough trouble feeding their own folks, let alone feeding Yankee prisoners of war. But now, that was exactly what they had to do. The most notorious prisoner of war camp that the Southerners opened was near a town called Andersonville, and that was the name that the prisoner of war camp came to be known by. It was opened in November 1863, taking its first prisoners in February 1864. What happened there had echoes in the Nazi concentration camps during World War II. Prisoners arrived at the site by train. The camp wasn't completed when the first arrivals got there. This was reminiscent of the vast gulags that the communists set up for their own people who didn't think or at least act in the way they should or just because. The Yankee prisoners had to use whatever materials they could find to make some sort of shelter. Some just dug pits in the ground. The food they were fed was scarce and poorly prepared because of a lack of cooking utensils, and it was unnourishing. At the beginning in May 1864, there were just 12,000 prisoners at Andersonville, but the number of prisoners were held there kept increasing, substantially beyond what had been planned for, and beyond which Andersonville could cater for. 
The size of the prison was increased from 6.7 hectares with 12,000 prisoners to 10.5 hectares with more than 32,000 prisoners. Water was obtained from a stream that ran through the camp. The water was used for drinking, bathing and laundry. The stream was adequate for 12,000 prisoners who were intended to be kept at Andersonville, but it couldn't cope with the more than 32,000 prisoners that ended up there. The water became highly polluted. It was dangerous to drink from, but that was all there was. In just seven months, over the summer of 1864, one-third of the prisoners at Andersonville died. In all, 13,000 prisoners at Andersonville died from disease, malnutrition and other causes. One of the doctors assigned to Andersonville by the Confederacy was Dr John M. Howell as acting assistant surgeon. Andersonville had opened in February 1864. Dr Howell joined the medical team there five months later in July. By then, 4,576 prisoners had already died from the appalling conditions that they were living under. So the situation was out of control from the get-go for him. While he was working at the hospital, he used to write letters to his wife. and These give great insights into how things were at the hospital. In one letter he wrote... I met up with Dr. Crodeal, who asked me to walk with him to the Yankee Hospital. I did so when such objects in the way of men I never saw before, sick and emaciated, naked, ragged and dirty. Some on straw with a blanket under them, some without either. Some that will die tomorrow, some today some dying with another whose face is turned toward him, breathing his last. I saw, too, some awful cases of gangrene, cases where the flesh has been destroyed to the bone. But before you can imagine such pictures, you must first see some sufferings like these. I can give you no idea of them. In comparison, an ordinary death is pleasant to contemplate. The doctors were only allowed to admit 200 prisoners to the hospital every day, leaving hospital staff to turn away many who desperately needed medical attention. Those who were admitted into the hospital were the sickest of the sick, and their next destination was often the prison cemetery. The number of prisoners turned away from being admitted to the hospital devastated morale of the prisoners inside the prison stockade. In some cases, prisoners who were miserable with their inflicted illness would speed up the process of dying by taking their own life. Others, like the case of Griggs Holbrook, held on to hope until their last moments. Suffering from chronic diarrhoea, Holbrook focused his attention on his comrade, Jones Sherwood. Both men were of the 76th New York Infantry. Holbrook cared for Sherwood, who was also 
rapidly growing sicker each day. Griggs noted in his diary, After carrying Jones over to the hospital several times, I finally succeeded in getting him in. Three weeks later, Sherwood was laid to rest in the red Georgia soil. Holbrook, who stayed positive through his diary, joined Sherwood in the prison cemetery later that month. The Union government used the conditions of the prisoners in Andersonville for propaganda against the South. Secretary of War Edward M. Stanton ordered retaliation on Confederates held in Union prisons. Temporary relief came for a large number of the Andersonville prisoners in the autumn of 1864 when General William Tecumseh Sherman took Atlanta, Georgia. The dramatisation of that event is captured nowhere better than in the scenes shown of the Confederate wounded filling the streets of Atlanta in the movie Gone with the Wind. Some of the prisoners who had been moved out of Andersonville were returned after General Sherman's army struck out from Atlanta heading for Charleston Harbour on the Atlantic coast. The conditions at the camps prisoners who had been moved to were better than those at Andersonville. While they were away, conditions at Andersonville finally improved. After the war, Captain Henry Worth, wrongly identified as the commander of the prison, was tried and convicted of war crimes by a Yankee military commission. Worth rejected an offer of parole in exchange for his incrimination of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. That would not have been an honourable thing to do. A few minutes past 10am on 10th November 1865, Captain Henry Wurz walked briskly from the old Capitol prison in Washington, D.C., where he'd been held since his arrest in May, after a military tribunal had found him guilty of violating the rights of prisoners according to the rules of war. He had been held at that prison awaiting his execution by hanging. He was taken from the prison to the site of execution. In front of him was the scaffolding with the trapdoor and a noose. A crowd of about 200, including spectators and members of the press, gathered in the square to watch his execution. More spectators watched from the top of the prison walls and on the roofs of nearby houses. Some of the spectators shouted, Hang the scoundrel! Remember Andersonville! Through all of this, Wurtz had a slight smile on his face. Some of the observers commented favourably on his calm demeanour. He made a good end, they said. Captain Henry Wurz is the only person on American soil to be tried, convicted and executed for war crimes. The irony of it is that Captain Wurz was not in overall command of the camp. That position was held by another officer. There were certainly others more responsible than Captain Wurz for what had happened at Andersonville. He died a scapegoat. Dr Howe's letters combined with the testimonies from the trial of Captain Henry Wurz gives a glimpse into what it was like to be a prisoner 
and to be one of the staff working at the prison. Working at the most crowded and deadliest prisoner of war camp of the Civil War had not been easy for any member of the staff, and of course, it was a million times worse for the prisoners. On 9 April 1865, the American Civil War came to an end. The prisoners locked inside the stockade walls of Andersonville, and the staff working there now only had one thing on their minds, getting home. Signing off on his last preserved letter, Dr. Howell wrote his wife, I want to see you all very much and hope that the time is not too far distant when I might be allowed that privilege. I should just mention that there were other prisoner of war camps for Union soldiers that were as terrible as Andersonville in different ways. And so it was that the Union prisoners at the Alabama, prisoner of war camp at Cahaba, after the Alabama River jumped its banks, the prisoners there had to stand in waist-deep water for a week in winter. The US government arranged for the men who had been held prisoners in the South to be transported up the Mississippi on their way back home. One of the vessels hired to transport them was the paddle steamer, Sultana. Their nightmare was over, or so it seemed. After the prisoners were released from Andersonville and the other prisons, they had a hard slog making their way to Vicksburg, where they'd been told steamboats would carry them to their homes in the north. Steamboats leaving from Vicksburg on the Mississippi River could reach the Missouri, Ohio and Tennessee rivers. From there, the men would be able to reach the towns of the American Midwest from where a lot of the soldiers had come. But to first get to the Mississippi River at Vicksburg, the soldiers had to travel by boat, train and on foot. Many of these men were so weak from the maltreatment in the prison camps that they died along the way. Some of the trains they boarded derailed because the railroad tracks had been damaged by the US Army during the war. In 1865, there were no highways and not even many good roads. The first major place that these soldiers reached on their way to Vicksburg was Jackson, Mississippi. From there, they had to walk the rest of the way to Vicksburg, which was then about 80 kilometres on the old road. A lot of these men didn't have shoes. Their feet were bleeding by the time they reached the Big Black River, just east of Vicksburg. They were also extremely hungry. At least when they reached Camp Fisk, a Union fort, the men were given clean clothes and food. They stayed there without tents or even blankets, though. Many of the already weakened men fell sick while waiting to board the steamers. Since the government didn't have the means to transport these troops home, it made generous offers to the private sector to enlist their help. $5 a head for an enlisted man and... $10 for an officer to take them back home. That was serious big bucks in those days. The Sultana was one of the paddle wheelers that was keen 
to make as much of this offer as it could. When it reached the big Union base of Vicksburg, travelling up from New Orleans, it was carrying 180 people. The Sultana was licensed to carry a maximum of 375 souls. The boat was about 80 metres long and 13 metres wide. With the licensed carrying capacity of the Sultana, it was going to be able to legally take on board another 175 people, giving a handsome return to the captain of between $1,800 and $3,700. But why settle for that when there were bigger opportunities begging? There were 2,200 people waiting for transport back home at Vicksburg, so the enterprising captain took all 2,200 people on board for passengers. Of course, to do that, the captain had to grease the palms of US officials in charge of having the soldiers shipped north. Those palms could be, and were, greased to make sure that this happened. Now, this increased human cargo was worth between $11,000 and $22,000. Not bad. In today's money, that was up to $348,000. There was one problem, though. One of the boilers that powered the Sultana was leaky. When I say leaky, I mean very leaky. The captain got an engineer aboard to fix the problem. The engineer did what he could, but he told the captain and the chief engineer that the boiler wasn't safe. The Sultana's chief engineer with some prompting from the captain, promised the engineer that he would have a complete repair done after the boat had got done with this trip north up to Cairo. It would then go back to New Orleans and have the work done. But it was just a leaky boiler. What could go wrong? Many of the prisoners freed from Andersonville and some of the other Confederate prisoner of war camps were so weak that they had to be carried on board the steamer. Mostly, though, it was just standing room only on the decks. But the boys were going home, and that was all that mattered. The Sultana left Vicksburg and headed north on 26 April 1865. The going was slow. The ship was carrying six times the number of men that it was licensed to carry. The snows had melted upstream, and the mighty Mississippi River was in flood. The Sultana struggled to make headway against the powerful current moving south. The Sultana docked at Memphis, Tennessee. Some of the passengers got off and toured the town. Late that night, they boarded again, and the Sultana resumed its voyage. At 2 a.m. in the morning, when the Sultana was about 11 kilometres north of Memphis, one of the boilers exploded. That triggered the explosion of the other boilers. The entire centre of the boat erupted like a volcano. Many were killed by shrapnel from the explosion. Many of the soldiers packed in closely to the boilers were from Kentucky and Tennessee. They were instantly killed by the explosions. Boiling water was now sprayed over many of the passengers who hadn't been killed by the blast. They either died horrible deaths straight away or were left with very serious burn wounds 
that would make it impossible for them to survive what was now about to happen. Some of the passengers were blown into the air off the deck and landed in the icy waters of the Mississippi. Some of the passengers were incinerated on the boat when fires broke out after the explosion. For the lucky ones, one minute you were sleeping and the next minute you were in the Mississippi. The river was about eight kilometres wide where the explosion had taken place, swollen with the melted snow flowing from up north. The surviving passengers on the boat couldn't see the shore. Which way to swim? Some of the lucky ones found debris in the river, some of it from the boat. They were able to cling to that to keep them afloat. Some clung onto a few horses and mules that had been on board and had survived the blast. One man survived by floating for almost 16 kilometres on the back of a dead mule. The alarm was first raised when a passenger, a survivor, a teenage boy, floated up to the waterfront in Memphis and told the sentry at the docks what had happened. People from Memphis began to man boats to go out into the rapidly flowing waters to try to find survivors. A lot of the people rescued were naked by the time they were pulled from the water. Their clothing and footwear impeded their efforts not to drown and they quickly shed it. Red long johns, the underwear that men used to wear back in the day, were handed out to survivors. The survivors could be easily spotted wandering the streets later by their red long johns. Many survivors in the river were pushed towards the Arkansas side of the river, away from Memphis. Although the war was over, it was only just over. It might have been expected that these Yankee soldiers who were facing death on what remained of the wreck of the Sultana, or in the river, would be left to die by the people who only weeks before were their mortal enemies. But humanity overtook the hatred of that recent war. The folk on the Arkansas side of the river did all that they could to rescue people, and more in some cases. A former Confederate soldier with the 23rd Arkansas Cavalry Franklin Harden Barton had had the duty in the last stages of the war of raiding Yankee ships going up and down the Mississippi. For the past few years, the Mississippi had only carried Yankees, so anything on the river was fair game. But even though just a few weeks before this, he would probably have been spreading death and destruction to these desperate Yankee soldiers in the water, that night he saved several of them. There was another hero who'd seen the blazing wreck of the Sultana drifting down the river after the accident, Fogelman. At first, the wind blew the fire to the rear of the wreck until there was nothing left to burn. Then one of the paddle wheels fell off on one side, which caused the burning hulk to turn sideways. And then the other paddle wheel fell off. Now the fire was moving towards the bow. There, 25 Yankee soldiers, the only people still on the wreck, cowered for their lives with the flames getting closer and closer. Fogelman and the men with him didn't have any boats, but they improvised a raft from logs that were nearby. Then somehow they manoeuvred the raft to the bow of the Sultana, rescuing all 25 men, 
before the flames finished engulfing the Sultana. Those poor men were taken to the Fogelman home, which also became a refuge for other survivors plucked from the waters. When the Titanic sank, about 1,500 souls were lost. The death toll from the Sultana was 1,800. It is the biggest maritime disaster that America has ever had. You may be surprised, just as I was, to learn that this disaster didn't really come to the attention of America until 1970, over 100 years later. There were a lot of good reasons for that. The Civil War had just ended on the 9th of April. On the 15th of April, President Lincoln was assassinated. On the 26th of April, the day before the Sultana disaster, John Wilkes Booth, the man who had assassinated Lincoln, was trapped in a barn at the Garrett farm and died from a gunshot wound. It seems that the American people were weary of hearing stories about large losses of life and the press gave very little coverage to the Sultana disaster. Thanks for joining me, Paul, for this Danger Zone program, and please join me for my next naval disaster. <laughs>